0: The Choose Your Own After Podcast. My name is Stacy, otherwise known as the Willow Jack Mama, and I am coming to you every week with a different episode that will likely just be a conversation among friends. I've got a lot of great people in my world that have inspired me with their stories of strength, of overcoming challenges, or just of because of their vulnerability and their authenticity. Um, They share what they've learned along the way and those stories uh, help me to kind of get out of those moments of being stuck that I've found myself in. I myself am a mum to three young adult men who, two of which, have severe autism. So we've had a lot of challenges along the way. So oftentimes I'll also be coming to you with conversations about our experience of autism disability, caregiving. Um, I'm a single mom and that comes up quite a, a lot as well so I hope that you tune in every Thursday with a new episode. There are a lot of nuggets that you can apply to your own you know journey uh, towards wellness and I hope that you like what you hear so settle in and I'm really grateful for you to take the time to spend with us every week. take care. Dum do dummy, dum. Welcome. I'm so glad that you joined me. I'm feeling a little, a uh, little weird. I'm actually. This is probably the first time I think that I've. I'm going to attempt doing a recording all by myself. I don't have a partner. I'd originally scheduled to do a conversation recording with my oldest son. Uh, But he was unavailable. And frankly, it's just difficult to coordinate schedules. He stays up all night. I stay up all night too, but I try and sleep. Um, But uh, it just hasn't worked out. So here we are. So I thought that this might be an opportunity for me being by myself to talk a little bit about Um, three things that I have learned in my experience of having the twins that I do. I know that even now it's been years. So my twins are will be 19 in January. They were diagnosed uh, at the age of two. So they were diagnosed with autism at the age of two. So it's been a long time and in so many ways I can remember it like it was yesterday that year that they were diagnosed. And then in other ways I think oh my god it's been you know several lifetimes ago. So it's hard to kind of tap back into the mindset that I was in back then. But every now and then especially particularly in the last couple of years I've been online a lot more with a lot more parents. Uh, that are going through their own experiences of new diagnosis and of kind of navigating their early years of um, having their children diagnosed with autism. And just because, um, partic- I guess particularly because I've got twins, I think I'm, I come quick to mind to people to ask for a little bit of insight. Now, I have to say, I am not an expert. I'm really not. And that's probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned in all of this journey. Just as they say, there are no two people um, who are alike that have autism or anything else. You're not going to find a parent who can give you all the answers because we all come with our own backgrounds. We're all informed by different things and people and experiences. So there's no right and there's no wrong. Uh, I hope that if you are listening and you are a parent or a grandparent or a caregiver to um, a younger, well, not even younger, but a newly diagnosed person with autism that you care for, that you learn more than anything. And I guess I'll I'll dive right into it and say this is my first, the first big lesson that I learned, is that no one is an expert. The The paid caregivers, the paid therapists, the doctors. You know, I don't care if you have 20 kids who have autism. I don't care if you have autism yourself. No one is an expert on your child. Your child is their own person. They are going to learn in their own way. They are going to, you know, grow into their uniqueness in their own way. And there is nothing that anybody is going to tell you that can predict what will happen on that journey. And that took me a long time to get and I don't know if I have even completely fully believed that myself even today and we're almost, you know, 16 years in. So I'll back up a little bit and I'm just going to tell you a little bit about um the beginning of the journey with the boys. I'm not going to go into all of the signs or the the things that I saw or all the things that led up to a diagnosis. But I will say that once I had the confirmation that both of the twins had had been diagnosed with autism, all I knew was that we now had this label. We had this confirmation that all of those nagging worries or inklings Or feelings that things weren't just going to plan or that things weren't going the same way they had gone with their older brother, um, that I was validated by being told, yes, there is a reason for that. Because for a long time, uh, I was kind of given a bit of a runaround. And, you know, in defense of people, they didn't know any better at the time. My own family doctor had never before had a patient um, that was diagnosed with autism. He didn't know the signs. And we're going back to the years, you know, 2003 to 2005. And at the time, it was a fairly small town. um, And we weren't in a super metropolitan, I guess, city. And, you know, times were different. We didn't have the internet the way that we do now. You got your news mostly from the newspaper and from the news on television. And I think I referred to this actually in a previous uh, podcast episode. But to kind of put it into context, it was such a big deal, especially that I had twins who both had autism. It was such a big deal to people that somehow the story, if you wanna call it that, got out and they had a reporter contact me from the local newspaper to interview me about the experience. And that to me was mind blowing. Like, really, can you even imagine if they did a news story on a diagnosis? I don't even know, I don't keep up with the statistics anymore, but I imagine that there is a person being diagnosed, you know, a million times a day all over the world it's no news anymore that's for sure so going back to that uh because it was just so unfamiliar to people for cultural references or pop culture references we really and I know we've heard this before but we really only had you know Dustin Hoffman as the rain man and that is not a good example (laughs) at all um and I I don't even know if I could have back then thought of any others. I had experienced myself as having through high school and university, my university years, I always worked part-time in relief work and full-time over the summers and whatnot. Um, I worked in with the associations for community living with Metro Toronto, as well as, you know, out in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. Um, I had worked in group home scenarios and camp scenarios, and I worked one-on-one with mostly young adults and adults, um, who had developmental or intellectual disabilities. So although I had that experience and exposure, the word autism, I don't think I ever, ever remember having seen that written down on anyone's paperwork at the time. I hate saying it, but at the time it would have been recorded that they were quote unquote retarded. Um, And I don't know if there was any other terminology that was used in the paperwork, um, unless they had a more specific diagnosis of something else or a brain injury or, you know. Anyway, so the word autism was kind of floating around me but not labeled as such. So when I was questioning things and I'll be really honest, my, my worries were mostly focused on Owen when they were very, very, very little, more so than Will. And um, he just, everything just seemed a little bit more delayed with Owen than they did Will. And when we actually went through the process of the diagnosis, They don't schedule the twins together. We went to a a children's center and saw a, a developmental pediatrician. They actually scheduled the assessments one week apart. So we first went in to have Owen assessed. And when we went in, I really started convincing myself that Owen was deaf. I think that I thought, you know, maybe he just can't hear and that's why he doesn't respond appropriately to us. He doesn't communicate because he can't hear. Um, And I thought maybe it explains some of the weird... I didn't even know that they were quote-unquote sensory-based kind of behaviors uh, or seeking behaviors, sensory-seeking behaviors. Um, But I kind of found ways in my mind, I think, to uh, explain it by thinking, well, maybe it's because he can't hear. So he's retreated into his own world and he... He likes the comfort of being enclosed in tight spaces. You know, I had all these different ideas in my head. And I don't think I was avoiding um, the word autism. I just wasn't familiar with it. But we actually, that's not entirely true because I did have a conversation with a very good friend, Ian. And I remember itemizing all of the different things or concerns that I had witnessed in both of the boys. But again, more particularly with Owen and uh, I don't remember if Ian actually said or if I actually came to him and said i found I think I came to him and said, "I found this article, and it gives you a checklist and if If you meet you know let's say seven out of ten markers, then it could potentially be autism and I remember bringing it to Ian because Ian was an educator at the time. Uh, He also had a little bit of experience himself with some people in his life who also had some intellectual and developmental disabilities. And as I was going through the checklist and I was telling him, you know, Owen is this and Owen is this and Owen is this, he was nodding along. And I think he was nodding almost to say, Yeah, I'm glad you're seeing this, Stacey, because I've been seeing it myself and I didn't know how to bring it up with you. So when I kind of met the conclusion on my own that, you know, I would likely hear a diagnosis of autism, I got that nod of, you know, agreement from him. And it was an interesting thing because when you take that back to your family and friends, or if you take those suspicions to your family and friends... You are, you know, and I think they don't know how to respond to you. They want to comfort you. They want to downplay it because it's just too much to think about. Um, Who knows what their reasons are, but you don't get a lot of support from people that say, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something wrong. You know, that's not something that anybody wants to say. So um, Ian was the one person that did and that felt incredibly comforting in many ways. So when I did with their dad go to uh, have that assessment done, the very first person that we were met with was um, someone who did a hearing test and a speech pathologist, I guess. And uh, we were sitting in the booth and I remember... They were on one side of the glass, and I had Owen sitting on my lap in this little enclosed room. And if you've ever had your hearing tested, you remember that a sound would appear from a specific point in the room. And when you have a toddler that size, you can't gesture and point to where the sound's coming from at all. But the, the technician or the person who's doing the assessment is observing them to see if they react in any way, if they turn towards the noise or the sound, and that would show acknowledgement that they could hear it. And I remember that Owen did look to certain sounds, and I thought, oh, damn it, he's not deaf. And honestly, I felt disappointment, and disappointment is probably putting it lightly. I felt fear, honestly, because I thought, okay, well, it's going to be something a little more harder to wrap my brain around. And as we went through the process, again, I said I wasn't going to talk about it, and here I am talking about it. But I won't go into all the detail, but it it was very difficult. And it was pretty, it was very firm, actually, when the doctor told us that Owen indeed did have autism, that she was able to say with absolute certainty from her observations And from the anecdotal information that we were providing, uh, that there was no doubt in her mind that he had autism. So when one week went by, we were dealing with the new knowledge and all that comes with that. And oh my gosh, so I, I I will say that knowledge is probably the wrong word. We were not equipped with information. We were equipped with very little information at the time. And again, it was just so new, I think, that that just was not something that a medical doctor was not responsible for. It was a weird time. 2005 was a weird time, particularly in Ontario, here in Canada, where I don't know what it was like all over the world, but there was an absolute separation in my mind of recognizing that autism was even... Um, oh, how do I explain this recognizing that autism was even a medical condition is the wrong word um, but it, that it it was more psychological developmental um, you know there was kind of like a detachment between there or there was an explanation in saying that there was a miswiring in the brain I think that's how it was explained to us And it was almost like it didn't account for explaining anything else that was going on in the rest of the body. Now, as Owen grew, I could see very clearly that there were a lot of things. How does not everything is behavioral. And I think that was ultimately um, the biggest, one of the biggest things that I got frustrated with very early was everything when you you went to any professionals, they all tended to say that, everything was behavioral, therefore you could change it. And that's a function as well of kind of the exposure we had to ABA and IBI therapy very early. They were looking for functions of behavior. But if I had, you know, suspicions or worries or concerns, um, particularly with Owen who, would demonstrate um real discomfort physical discomfort and it's something that goes on even now where he would scratch his skin um almost like he he seemed to be reacting as if he had ants crawling all over him or he looked like he was a pent-up ball of energy that had to explode you know is that all in his head? Is that something that you could work through with a behavioral program? No, I think there's something physiological happening with him. And, you know, sensory processing disorder and all those things, we weren't allowed to talk about it back then. And I I wish I should do my research and really figure out the history to better explain it to you. Um, But I was so preoccupied with the boys and their own experience that I didn't really care what was going on with you know, the world of autism around us um, so much to even understand why it was that way. But anyway, um, when I look back, that week was so difficult because when we were talking to different parents, uh, different people in our family, I would say, sorry, talking to our own parents, our siblings, our friends, our coworkers, everyone was shocked everyone required an explanation of what autism was and we were ill-equipped at the time to explain it but one thing that we did have is we could say well Jake Jake did this and Owen can't do that or we thought that by now they should be doing this 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 and this and they're not and it got to a point where the way we were able to justify it because frankly there were even members of our family um, that were questioning if the doctor was right and whether or not we should have a second opinion. And it took a lot of conversations to kind of say, well, look, it does make sense if you think about it. Compare when Owen does this and Will does this. Like, Owen is in his own world, but Will is actually engaging a little bit with us. And at that point, we did not know that Will, you know, Will had not been assessed yet. So in our minds, we were kind of still thinking maybe that we were wrong about will and that it was only owen that had autism so when we brought will in uh one week later and he had his assessment he got the exact same diagnosis and that was oh my god it was um it was hard it was hard it was really hard because I think in that first week where we learned that Owen had autism, it took a massive shift in, I don't want to use the word mindset, but it took a massive shift in how we looked ahead in our life. And we recognized that, oh my God, this is not going to be smooth <laughs> This is going to require a lot of planning, a lot of extra work, um, a lot of changing of the plan for our careers and our management of where we lived and could we stay in the home we were in and all that stuff. And what we realized very soon once we started making phone calls and figuring all of this out was that we were kind of on our own to navigate the systems and to try and find whatever supports we could Uh, to support Owen and we were overwhelmed even in that first week with the bits of information we were slowly accumulating so then to learn that Will also had the same diagnosis it was just terrifying that's all I'm going to say I was never terrified of my boys I was terrified of and not even work just really afraid that we wouldn't be able to pull it off And what that thing is, like pull it off, I don't even know if we recognized or knew what it was, but I will say that at two and a half years old, they weren't even two and a half, uh, it was hard. Like we were barely getting through our days at that time. Um, We were both, you know, stressed beyond belief, stretched to the ultimate ends (laughs) of you know our capacity to kind of manage our our stress and our worry and our sleep we weren't sleeping and not because of stress but just because the boys weren't the behaviors the meltdowns it was just it was really a crazy time it was a crazy time and the thought that this would be something that they wouldn't just outgrow as you do the infant stage and you kind of go Or the toddler stage, you go through terrible twos and you think, okay, well, we'll get through this. We'll get through this. Well, now we were realizing, oh my gosh, it's not going to just happen on its own. We've got, you know, we have miracles to work here so that we can figure out how to, you know, figure this out so that we can get to the next stage. And that just seemed like not just a mountain to climb. It felt like Everest and You know, we were just two young people with three kids under the age of, well, at that time under the age of three and thinking, oh my gosh, like, how are we going to do all of this? So when I go back and when I talk about the lessons that I learned, the first one was all of those fears, all of those expectations as well that we had for our kids prior to the diagnosis, all of the sadness that we felt upon their diagnosis. If I had known then what I know now, I probably would have lived a lot more peacefully in the last, you know, 15 years because I realize now that I projected So much fear, expectation, and sadness onto my boys because I assumed that they would feel all of those same things somewhere within them. For example, I remember driving one day and I had just finished reading a book that I think I've referred to as well, maybe in a blog called Let Me Hear Your Voice. And in it, it was, you know, the story is about one mother, I think it was the mother, one mother's crusade at um, healing her child, or I don't remember what the word is, but having her child overcome autism, let's word it that way. Through the use, or through the journey of ABA therapy, they were able to help her nonverbal child become verbal and let's say assimilate (laughs) into a neurotypical world now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a person who has autism that you know somehow finds their way from one extreme to the other so that they develop all the skills so that they can live independently after having been um nonverbal or whatnot I'm not I'm not judging any of that but I will say that back then I feel that the doctor as well that was kind of the goal right that's what was kind of drilled into your head the goal is we are going to have to do everything in our power so that our children are taught all the skills And are given all the tools necessary so that they can learn to speak primarily. That was the most important goal. Um, Learn to speak and that they can learn to thrive and interact with others and be social with their peers so that they can someday go to school and uh, eventually become independent people that can contribute to the world and the workforce and not be dependents upon anyone or any system. That's really the goal. That's kind of rammed um, down upon that was what was rammed down upon us at birth. And, you know, honestly, I think that's what a lot of parents hope for. You hope that your children can be happy and independent. And for me, it's not that I wanted normal, it's that I wanted my children to be independent, and because for me, I feel that that is, that equals a lot of happiness, and that might be the wrong way to word it, but I would think that most people don't like the thought that they are dependent upon someone else for everything, for, from you know having money, having an income having a roof over their head. You know, I want to have my own independence. I don't want to be dependent on a man. I don't want to be dependent on my parents. I want to be able to make my own decisions, have my own agency, choose what I get to eat every day, choose what I get, how I get to dress or what time I wake up. And that's what I would hope for for my children. And, you know, early on, I think that I developed this intense fear that my children would not succeed unless I did everything in my power. I would move, you know, I would move mountains in order for them to get the supports that they needed. Um, But it it came from a place of fear. It also came from a place of necessity, but it came from a place of fear. And I I know I'm babbling because that's what I tend to do. But I, as I was saying earlier, I remember a moment where I was driving in my car. I read this book, Let Me Hear Your Voice. I'd finished the book. And I remember thinking that my Owen, for whatever reason, again, I can't put myself completely back there to remember why he, it felt so different from Will. But I had a special kind of fear for him that I I think I had more... Hope for will that he would find his way, but i i I had a lot more worries but where Owen was concerned, and I had this intense sadness overcome me, and I remember where I was exactly on the road in front of what gas station I was in front of, and I remember just sobbing uncontrollably while I was driving because all of a sudden I was putting myself in Owen's shoes as an adult person, and I imagined him trapped in a nonverbal body unable to express his needs and having all these thoughts and wants and desires and not being able to achieve them not having the intimacy of close relationships and friendships not being able to express himself in any way and oh my gosh i don't even know why i said that because it's going to make me cry now but that's that was my fear and I have felt that throughout the course of his life and Will's life. I have those fears all the time. But what I'm realizing now is, while it is true that those things might be real issues, Owen may, he is nonverbal. He still is unable to express himself fully the way I'm sure he wants to. He doesn't have you know, friends. Uh, He doesn't have, you know, deep relationships. He doesn't have independence. But what I'm realizing is those are the things that I want for myself. How do I know that that's what Owen wants? I have no idea what Owen wants. And that's the thing that I want to put out to any parents who are newly in this game. A lot of what we worry about, and we have genuine things to worry about for our kids. We all do, whether our kids have, you know, extraordinary needs or not. We want the best for our kids. But what we, I think we have to do is keep our own fears and expectations aside and not put them on our children. I don't, my will, for example... I don't think he could give two shits if he ever makes a friend in his life beyond what he has right now. I really mean that. I think he is quite content being on his own. Um, And if he wants something, he goes for it. He really does. He likes, he's got some buddies, but I don't, I think he is quite content with kind of the way things are going for him right now. So do I need to force it on him to to feel bad that he doesn't have three best friends that he chums around with? Or, you know, when his birthday comes around, is he sad that he doesn't have friends at a birthday party? That's me that's sad. I don't know that my boys are sad about that. It's just like Halloween is a good example. And I wrote a piece about this a long time ago about how Halloween I used to make such an effort and we did as a whole family with her dad and you know, everybody would dress up, it would be a we'd decorate the house, we'd go out every year and manage to hit as many streets as we could. And Owen and Will actually at that time too, when when they were young, they didn't care. Like they really didn't care. We practically had to drag Owen to the doors. And in the last few years, last four years he really didn't want to go he would shake his head no and he would dig in his heels and made it very clear that he did not want to go and Will on the other hand Will has had this newfound you know discovery of the holidays and of Halloween and of Christmas especially and he loves it he laps it all up um so we have to I have to make the effort for those for Will definitely but Owen is really okay I think with not doing the Halloween thing and I don't need to put my guilt my you know mama guilt onto him and feel that I've got to do all that just because he must be in there so sad in his own body and mind crying because he doesn't get to go trick-or-treating like that's me putting that on him and I don't know if I'm making myself clear but I really think that we often do this projection thing where we put our own stuff onto our kids. And if if I had known that so many years ago and just lived in the moments of my boys, I think we would have been a lot happier. And I think I would have saved myself a lot of guilt and a lot of sadness because, you know, there were days where we were going through, you know, just the trials and tribulations of going through life. And I would cry so often and I would feel so much sadness about my boys I would let myself imagine what they must think but I have no idea what they're thinking so why put yourself through that I I can definitely be empathetic I can definitely you know imagine or try to put myself in their shoes when it serves a purpose but it doesn't serve a purpose to just feel sorry for them because I think that that's my own issues that I'm putting on to them so biggest lesson right there So moving on, the second thing that I really think is a big lesson is that when you enter into a world of requiring the professional support and help and expertise of, you know, professionals, of doctors, therapists therapy providers. I'll go through the list here. Occupational therapists, speech therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, developmental pediatricians, social workers, um, physiotherapists, if I haven't said that one already, teachers, educational assistants, principals, autism specialists, uh, special education resource teachers, you have so many professionals, I haven't even gone into doctors, just all, there's a million doctors that you might see as well. When you get into this world of disability in particular, and you don't have the same diagnosis of your child, you turn to the experts. And what I've learned is I was just actually writing this down for my own you know just thinking it through we had over the course of the boys so the boy when the boys were diagnosed at two and a half years old we had them in a therapy program I believe it was in it was within the first three months that they were diagnosed that we managed to get them into a therapy program and they were in therapy from the time they were before the age of three so from the age of two until the age of I think it was seven years old and then therapy became shorter um we cut it down to part-time because we had put them into we were living in Calgary at the time and we enrolled the boys in a private school and it was uh, a private school where it was mostly one-to-one support um and it incorporated some ABA uh into you know its curriculum and so they were in that program until we pulled them out of that as well because we couldn't afford the $40,000 a year per child at that school and we put them in a public school and then we came back to Ontario shortly thereafter. So therapy though had gone on from the age of two let's say at least until seven or eight. I think I'm right in saying that. So in the course of those years, each of the boys had all of those types of professionals that I've referred to. Um, And, you know, let's take speech paths, for example. Both of my boys were nonverbal, especially when they were young, young, young. And they would have a speech path at their nursery school because their nursery school had Uh, an ABA program it was based on an ABA ABA program and then they had an at-home therapy program that happened for the rest of the day so it ended up ultimately being like a 40-hour week for them um, all entrenched in therapy that's a lot that's a lot but we would have a speech path that was assigned that fortunately was the same speech path in the morning as it was in the therapy program Um, But then when we switched to, I switched the boys from one therapy kind of program to another. We also did a move in between from Ontario to Alberta, back to Ontario. I ended up counting in my head that they have had eight different agencies or schools in total where they have learned, been in a learning kind of environment since they were the age of two. So eight different learning environments. Of those eight different learning environments, I guarantee you, I can't count it right now, but I am sure there were at least two to three different speech paths that they would have had um, in almost all of those settings. So when you multiply it, I do think that they each easily had 16 different speech paths apiece that they have seen Now, that's a lot of experienced professionals that are all trying to accomplish the same thing. They're trying to assist my boys in communicating. And when you think about 16 people, heck, let's even make it, if you don't believe it's 16, let's say 10, 10 different speech paths over those years who all have the same goal that we we do. We want our boys to learn how to communicate and we can make it even more focused and talk about Owen. And with Owen, that's 10 different speech paths, 10 different speech paths who came from two different provinces where they had their educations, Alberta and Ontario. They came with different specializations, I would say as well. Some were speech paths that came uh, from you know working primarily in a school setting some came to work primarily in an at-home therapy setting um so they all had different you know ways at approaching what they did and all of them were experts and I could tell you that of those 10 you could divide them down the middle well no you could divide them into 10 they all had different approaches to how they were going to teach Owen to communicate. So I had some who believed that Owen should learn sign language. Some some who believed that we should stick primarily to using a picture exchange communication system that was in a binder. I had some who believed in I believe it was called the prompt method and that was where a trained professional who had you know learned the method would tap or touch different parts of Owen's face that would prompt or encourage the shaping of sound that would turn into words, I guess. Um, And for a person with severe apraxia, that was one of the methods that they believed in. I had some, at the time, we didn't even have iPads if you go way back. So there were different augmentative communication devices that were used that you could um, get some funding for from the hospital when we were in Alberta. We never accessed that. We we kind of maxed out on the wait list on that one. But then the iPod came in, and the iPod we di- we started using the Proloquo2Go, which is a software or an app that was used on the phone that, um, if it was organized properly, that the child could learn how to communicate tapping on symbols, and it would have a voice output that would speak for him. So we had some speech paths who believed in that program. And then we moved back to Ontario, and Owen entered into the school system. And the school board didn't believe in using that particular app, they had a much cheaper version of the app that was less expensive. And they didn't want to use Owen's iPad. They wanted him to use the school iPad, and I'm sure that training had to do with that as well. the The speech paths were trained in that one app, and the teachers and EAs, et cetera, were also trained in it. Therefore, they didn't want Owen to use Proloquo. So now you've got all of these different methods of communication. Every single expert has told me, or speech path has told me that that's the way to go and that's what we should do. But now I have a child who's 18 years old, who I believe is fed up. I'm fed up. I'm tired. We have learned all these different methods and every time we changed to school or changed to whatever, they changed his communication method as well. So Owen has been taught to learn all these different things, but now he doesn't really use much of any of it. At school, he uses the app that they have for him at home at a home he has no interest he does not want to carry that iPad around and use it if anything he wants to use proloquo which is what he's always used at home and he's never learned how to generalize from one to the other and it's just frustrating and I guess my point in all of this is not the speech paths I don't blame the speech paths but I want to encourage parents to to wrap their heads around the idea That had I spoken up when no one was much younger, um, I believe that I had a voice at the table. And we're led to feel that we don't have that because the experts know better. I'm not challenging you to challenge every single professional that you work with. But I feel that I didn't properly advocate so many times in the course of the last 15 years because I felt that I was kind of being uh, ganged up on by the professionals in the room who told me that they knew better and they might have known better. But I did know my child and I had a bigger picture view of his whole life and what he had gone through prior to him meeting these people. I knew how he lived at home and I think that our perspective really mattered bottom line is you are your child's best advocate, especially if they can't speak for themselves or express themselves in any way. And I think that we've got a lot of professionals in our life who are um, sometimes, you know, their whole role is to assist, support, instruct, educate, uh, you know, both parents and the people that they um, are hired to support. And sometimes I think that it is forgotten that you are the one that really knows where you've come from, where you're headed to, and what you and your child want for their life. And um, I think that I've handed over the reins one time too many. I wish I had better advocated for my children at certain points in the course of their years of therapy in particular. Um, I wasted a lot of time and energy on some agencies that really, you know, um, <laughs> I should have listened more closely or watched for the signs more closely to my child to know that um, we had kind of overstayed our welcome with certain agencies. And, you know, there's one instance in particular where because I had twins, um I had two separate therapy teams that work together and you know, I had to choose my battles. It was a, and it it was kind of an exercise in having to be involved and invested in all aspects of the therapy. It was not a center based program where you drop your kids off and pick them up at the end of the day. Um, It was in my home and I had to participate in a lot of the programming, which I was grateful for. It, It taught me so that I could transfer, That knowledge into our home environment without the support of the therapists. Um, But we had two programs operating at the same time, and I had to choose my battles. So if we were going through a period of a lot of behavioral stuff with Will, um, we referred to the previous in the previous podcast with Michelle, we talked about how. Will, for example, was running away and trying to jump out windows and dive under cars. You know, that was a real serious time in our life. And that's where my energy had to be focused. So I wasn't able to put in the same work for Owen at the time. There's only one of me. So and I had a third child as well, who was not in therapy. And you know, that's a whole separate issue. Um, Anyway, I had a lot of different people to take care of. So I had a therapist pulled me aside or it was in a clinic meeting and she cried while she told me that she stays up at night and fears for Owen's future because I was not meeting his needs in terms of the therapy that was needed in order for him to lead a successful life. And that it broke her heart that I was not doing my job where Owen was concerned. Now, I am, there's, there was a lot more to that conversation, but I have never been more angry in my life. This was a person who was in Owen's life for a couple of months, who, you know, at that point, I think Owen was probably five, maybe five or six years old. And it was true that I was not fully participating in his therapy program at the time because I was choosing to fully participate in Wills because, yes, I, I want I wanted Owen to be able to communicate. That is absolutely a humongous goal that I had at the time. But I also had another boy who, as I said, literally was putting his life in danger on the regular basis, on a daily basis. And that's where I had to focus my attention. There was no um, care at the fact that I was being pulled in every direction. Um, And the fact that this woman could say that to me, and and I'm being gracious and even calling her a woman, to be honest. This was a younger therapist in her early 20s um you know did not have children of her own and that's not a judgment but um to to question me as a mother and what I was doing to provide for Owen I've never been more angry and honestly it it wasn't just ego because ego plays a big role it was not ego that had me upset that she was questioning me it was the fact that she was speaking as if She was the only person who was looking out for Owen's best interests. Um, Anyway, that put a kibosh on that relationship. And I ended that pretty quick, to be honest. And when I removed Owen from that therapy program, moved him to another agency, he thrived with the next one. He absolutely thrived. And I think this leads me to my third lesson or my third point that I hope every uh, parent kind of hears out there that might be um, experiencing similar journeys as I did Um, so not only that you don't have to entirely hand over all of your trust and faith in a professional but I think that you have to trust your gut And I know that that is said so frequently and how can you trust your gut when if you hear 30 people telling you you should be doing something and you've got that little inner voice in the back of your mind saying, no, you don't do that. You, you, you've got to do this instead. Of course, you're going to be overwhelmed with fear when you hear all those other 30 people telling you to do something, but If it's really your gut instinct that or you're you're reading something in your child and you know that you're doing something that is not working for them or you're making choices or decisions in, you know, their education or their medical needs or their, you know, whatever it might be, their therapy. Trust your gut as and as long as you can figure out a process to to really sit in that feeling and decide, is it fear or is it my instinct and my my gut instinct speaking? If you can figure out how to differentiate between the two, I say trust your gut because again, a parent's gut is usually the the real one that works. And you know, I I've spoken with, I know someone who is a very high highly esteemed uh, doctor at Toronto Kids Hospital. And we've had some great conversations um, about parents of children who have, you know, serious, you know, medical complex needs, autism, etc. And he told me, he said that's one of the things that he teaches his new younger uh, resident doctors and whatnot, that you really should be listening to parents because they are the the best ones that know their children And I I am so grateful to hear that from him and that, again, I am not a doctor. I'm not an expert. I'm not going to argue with my doctor. If he says that my child um, has strep throat, I'm not going to challenge him and say, well, no, he doesn't because my gut tells me he doesn't. I do believe in science and I do believe in in their professional um, education and experience. Of course I do. However, if I say that I have some, I have a sense that something is not right, if I have a feeling that there's a look in my children's eyes that tells me that they're uncomfortable, that they're frustrated or that they're sick, but they don't know how to communicate that with me, and a doctor tells me that it's nothing, that right there is one gut instinct that I run with. I know my children and I know there's certain... Um, you know wrinkles that kind of form in Owen's forehead right between his eyes and when he gets that little furrowed brow I know he's not feeling well and you can't I don't care if a doctor spends three days with him and says that everything is fine I know that Owen is experiencing pain when he has that trust your gut if you feel that you're um, working in a therapy program and it's just been going in the wrong direction for a long time and and you feel that you've got a lot of behavioral issues that are coming with your child and it you know the therapists and professionals and psychologists and all of those people can't figure out what it is um and you work on new programs just to work on those behaviors and you get caught in a cycle of never really learning new skills because all you're working on is how to correct or change behavior Um, I think that you've got to slow yourself down and really believe in what you're feeling and trust that if you pay close enough attention, you might be able to really figure out what the real problem is. And that's one area that I did not figure out. Um, I probably wasted a whole year where, again, Will was done with therapy. He was done. He... Exhibited so many behaviors. He became aggressive. He um, had meltdown after meltdown. The running away, all those things were happening on a daily basis. His OCD was through the roof. His anxiety was through the roof. And, you know, the day that I finally kind of clued in and said, you know what, I think he's done with therapy. We need a break. When that happened and we actually stepped back from that level of intensity, that is when I saw the biggest growth in Will. And I finally saw his true personality without all of those behaviors that came along with it. And again, that was my gut telling me that enough was enough. And I'm glad that I followed it. So I'm not an expert. I'm probably coming off like a know-it-all. And if I am, I really apologize I am a know-it-all when it comes to my kids. How about that? (laughs) I feel pretty confident in saying that uh, I I do feel that, you know, I've learned a lot on this journey. And it doesn't mean I'm not going to have missteps along the way. But as I referenced a few episodes back, as we're kind of um, exploring the idea of the boys finishing, or not the boys, but really will um, graduating out of school earlier than planned because I think he's had enough again that's a gut thing and I know in my gut that it's probably the right decision where I'm at right now though is what's the practicality of it and the logistics um, but I'm sure and I'm sure that some of his teachers or school administration might be listening um, I'm going to be met by, you know, challenges saying that it's the wrong thing to do. Um, however, I, I really have to believe that I'm, I'm re- I don't am want to say I'm right, but that I'm properly advocating for Will in saying that the time is kind of coming. I think that we're getting closer and closer to that date if it's a year or two years uh, we might be pulling the plug on school and finding new adventures for him. So anyway, I really hope that this helps somebody somewhere out there. And I I wish as well that I was more structured <laughs> and could stay on topic. Um, but again, the three lessons, if I was going to summarize them, are not to project your fears or expectations and especially your sadness on your child upon a diagnosis of autism you really have no idea where the road is going to lead and one thing i don't remember if i said earlier in this podcast or not but what you can't anticipate is all the joy and there is so much joy i feel that my life as a parent would not be nearly as sparkly and I know that sounds crazy because I'm often anxious and stressed often depressed <laughs> at a lot of our circumstances but the joy that does come is like tenfold what I think it would be um if we weren't on this journey because I've learned to appreciate all those little things and to celebrate all those little wins and it makes life a lot sweeter. So try your hardest to not put all that, you know, all that negative kind of stuff on your kids because it could turn out that it's all for naught. The second thing again is to really advocate for your children and not feel the pressure of the professional world from therapists to doctors to teachers to EAs you know I'll have another podcast episode one day where I talk and highlight all of the wonderful things that come from all of those supports that you'll have in your life but for this particular topic um, I just want to say you're the parent and you lead the way you lead the way and that leads us to trusting your gut because, again, as the parent, as the caregiver, uh, I think you are the best one to advocate for your child until they can start speaking for themselves and representing themselves um, when it comes to getting the the care and supports that they need. And on that note, I'll say thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate that you tune in every week, and if you're a new listener, I hope you'll go back to the beginning and listen to the different interviews we've had along the way, as well as some conversations about autism and all that comes with it. Uh, If you feel so inclined, it really would help if you know someone that this conversation might help to share it with them, to subscribe so that you can receive the podcast delivered to your phone every Thursday And if you feel so inclined, if you liked what you hear, please leave us a review. Those little things do help us so that we can continue to grow and to hopefully have that little ripple effect that we're hoping to have where we can, you know, bring some hope to some lives along the way. I don't want it to sound so grandiose as that, but that really is essentially what we're hoping for. So... Thank you so much for all of your support, and I hope you have a great week. Take care. Oh, yeah.